0: Hello, it's Vikas Porta, chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF.
1: Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us uh, in this post-lunch session. My name is Bobby Ghosh. I am a columnist and editorial writer at Bloomberg. Um, and I'm here to interview Pierre uh, Kinberg. I, I, I will uh, try my best not to murder that, uh, that name. Um, Pierre, I, was, I, I took his permission to say this before we came here. He has one of the most thankless jobs in the world. Um, as the Commissioner General of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian refugees, most commonly known as UNRWA. uh, He runs a giant organization that does not get even a fraction of the attention or the credit that it ought to get. Um, UNRWA employs 30,000 people in uh, five different countries. They provide uh, services for five million Palestinian refugees. Uh, A subset of that, which would be of interest to this audience, they run more than 700 schools, uh, catering to half a million, more than half a million children. Um, If this was a school system in the United States, it would be the third largest school system after New York and Los Angeles and Los Angeles. So that gives you a sense of the scale that that is uh, that is his responsibility. but for him, this is actually a slightly smaller scale, if, if, if I'm right, from your last job. Because Pierre used to be the director of operations for uh, the International Red Cross, which is also, of course, a giant organization. So um, as a journalist, as a, in my former life when I was a reporter, I, I got to see up close uh, the work that UNRWA does in uh, both the West Bank and Gaza, uh, and a little bit in, in Jordan. Uh, and I can tell you that it is uh, inspirational and to, to uh, very much in line with our theme of today, um, what Pierre and his j- team does, changes lives every day in incredibly di- difficult situations, in incredibly difficult circumstances of despair and, and violence, um, as well as politics over which uh, they have absolutely no control. So the, the challenges of, of providing education in that setup um, is something that I think uh, this audience would uh, want to hear a great deal about. And uh, we'll stick to the format that we've had so far. I'll ask Pierre a few questions and then I'll open up pretty quickly uh, to you uh, to ask yours. So, Pierre, if you if you don't mind me uh, starting because this is uh, uh, GESF and because tomorrow is the World Teacher Prize, uh, can I ask you to tell us about what, for this audience, will be your most famous student, the most famous product of the school system that you run?
2: Can yes, I, actually.
1: Go ahead.
0: Well, Bobby, thanks. First of all, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be here. We have. I think many very well-known graduates in the UNRWA school system. Actually, it's two million students have graduated since the 1950s. Mm. And they have gone into different parts of the world, many, of course, here in the Middle East, uh, but also North America, Europe, and elsewhere. But the most famous, or at least the most intimately connected to this event is, of course, Hanan al-Ru, who obtained the prize and the distinction here a few years ago, which was an incredibly strong message for every single Palestine refugee boy and girl in our education system. And I remember that after she was awarded this prize, and knowing that she was an UNRWA student herself, who had studied in an UNRWA school in Deisha camp in Bethlehem, and had then become a teacher in the Palestinian Authority education system. When I went to schools throughout the West Bank, but frankly also elsewhere in the region, and asked the students whether they knew uh, who Hanan uh, is, and uh, of course, everybody did. And uh, then I asked them whether they were aware that she had won this this important prize, and everybody did. And um, the reaction, in particular, of young girls in our schools was to say, but what did you expect? She's Palestinian. And the message is, I think, a very strong confirmation of how attached Palestinians are to education, and I think in that sense, uh, the prize she received and, and the honor she was granted was a, a very important message back to Palestinians. This is recognized on the international stage.
1: Right. Now, you, many of the teachers who come to the GESF come from countries where the the work they do is under uh, in under a lot of pressure and against incredible odds. But in a that almost all the schools that you run, almost all the teachers that work, and how many teachers is that who work? It's in? twenty
0: thousand plus. So,
1: so you have twenty thousand teachers who go to school every day under incredibly difficult circumstances, and they are teaching children uh, from ages six to sixteen who have lived their entire lives in those difficult circumstances. How, how do you deal with motivation in a situation like that? How do you keep teachers motivated? How do they keep children motivated? When everything around you seems designed to create despair, it would be so easy to say, what is the point? Why should I bother to get educated? It's not going to change my life. Why should I bother to teach these kids? I'm not going to be able to change their circumstances. How do you motivate people in that in those circumstances.
0: This is a really important point, because actually one of the most difficult things in this region of the Middle East is the lack of horizon. Yeah. Right? So of course, if you take Palestinian youth, all of the young boys and girls in our schools, uh, the majority of the population among Palestinians, of course, younger than 25 years old. Yes. They were all born after Oslo. And so they heard from their leadership, but also from the international community, that if you believe in negotiated processes, if you believe in politics, there will be a solution found. But that solution has not been found. Mm -hmm. So the horizon politically looks incredibly close. And in the middle of this, the question is how do you preserve some form of personal motivation and commitment? And here I have to say I have never, ever seen anything quite like this in many years of working in conflict zones, but also thinking back at my own role as a parent, with my sons going to school and everything, I have never seen a community as committed to education as the Palestinians. And I think it comes deeply from the fact that knowing and seeing that the political horizon is so closed, realizing that there are so few opportunities, at least preserve the personal and individual horizon of young boys and girls. And this has been my biggest discovery, because uh, I have done a lot of, and very proudly with the Red Cross, as you mentioned, uh, what I would now just simply describe as classic humanitarian work, the emergency interventions, the food distributions, the medical support. But when I joined UNRWA, I discovered that through education, you look, of course, at people in a situation of conflict differently. Because when you distribute food, and you engage with water distributions or you do emergency medical assistance, you will, in principle, look at the person from the perspective of being a victim. Yes. Whereas you engage on education, you will look at the young boys and girls, first and foremost, as actors of their own destiny and as change agents, which, by the way, the students themselves and those who sometimes accompany me to international events will say, young boys and girls, 14-year-olds, in the education system in UNRWA will say uh, to big uh, meetings in New York or in Cairo, they'll say, we know that we are victims, we know that we are refugees, but we don't want the world to see us only as such. Mm -hmm. We want the world to recognize us for our skills, our determination, our desire to contribute, our capacities, and I think that's a very important point. And that is by preserving and keeping the schools open, keeping the access to education preserved, that is where we maintain the hope for the students, but also the motivation for the teachers and everybody else who's engaged in this. One of the One of the
1: other th- things about UNRWA that is quite unique, the uh, United Nations has many agencies that do, that do amazing work around the world. But I think UNRWA is, is probably unique in the fact that its headquarters are in the place where it does its work. It's in the uh, um, and um, among the people it serves, and not in Geneva or in The Hague or in, in some nice uh, European uh, capital. Um, so that requires a great deal of if you're talking about motivation and commitment, it requires a great deal of commitment from your staff and from, from yourself. Um, it also means that you are, and the other, because you're a United Nations uh, agency, you're very much dependent on um, international donors um, you, from many countries. Um, ideally, the rich countries. But we are going through a period now in the world when more and more countries, large countries, rich countries, don't want to participate in, the international, in international efforts. Um, I'm American. My own country has always been very, very uh, ambivalent about UNRWA particularly. But in more recent years, even much more so. And now we have a, a president who wants nothing to do with uh, uh, being part of your solution. Um, how do, you, how do you deal with that? How do you compensate for the fact that you live in these times when countries
0: are reluctant to help? So two things come to mind. One is about the commitment, and then I'll come to the support. The commitment for, for me is really very important, and I just want to dis- describe it because we, it has happened to each and every one of us to sometimes think about the United Nations as one giant bureaucracy. And if you provide support, you don't quite know where the money goes and what is done with it. So a year and a half ago, I went to Aleppo, one of the most devastated landscapes I've seen in my life. And I've been to a number of conflict zones over the years. And I went there to thank the 240 staff members that UNRWA has in Aleppo, part of our 4,000 staff in Syria. And these 240 colleagues, all Palestinians themselves, had kept each of our schools and health centers open in Aleppo throughout the entire conflict. So that is not my definition of a bureaucracy. That is my definition of multilateralism and humanitarianism in action. And we've paid a high price, by the way. We've lost 18 colleagues, many of them teachers, in Syria during the last eight years of war. We have 25 who are still missing in the Syrian context. We also lost 11 colleagues during the war, uh, the month-long war in Gaza in 2014. So humanitarian actors that take risks of this nature is because we believe extremely strongly in it. And this commitment part is the most important. Because when we faced, like last year, a very challenging financial year, with the United States deciding to cut 300 million US dollars from its support to UNRWA, and the U.S. had been the single largest and most generous donor for decades. But this decision, of course, hurt a lot. However, whenever I think of these teachers and the staff in Aleppo or in other parts of Syria or in the Gaza Strip, I knew, I could never imagine going back to them and saying that after all the courage that they show every single day on dangerous front lines, risking their lives, that I would go back to them and say, we had failed to keep the schools open and the clinics open because we had not compensated for the money that we had lost from the Americans. So we rolled up our sleeves, got down into the arena, launched a global campaign last year that we called Dignity is Priceless, and reached out to other partners. And it was very remarkable to see that whether in Europe, here in the Gulf and not least in the United Arab Emirates itself, a very generous partner, but also in countries like Indonesia. And frankly, just a few weeks ago, a million was contributed by Afghanistan to UNRWA I just that, as yeah. a sign of how solidarity works when what is being achieved on the ground changes lives and has an impact. And that's how we mobilized it and managed last year to overcome the entirety of this massive and historic and actually existentially threatening shortfall that we faced with the support of so many partners. And we're immensely grateful for it because it is not about UNRWA. It's about the 530,000 boys and girls in our schools that every day cross checkpoints, front lines, and others because they know that the school is on the other side and that that is what preserves hope and a basis of dignity for them.
1: I want to try and, get, uh, for the benefit of the audience, understand a little bit about what, what your life is like in the sort of constantly changing and unpredictable world in which you operate. Uh, as a journalist, I, I'm, I'm looking at television, and suddenly I hear some rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel. And there is a new cycle that develops around that. We know what the response is likely to be. And, and as journalists, we know what to expect and how to prepare ourselves. When, when that news flashes, what is going on in your head? And what are the sequence of
0: things you have to do in anticipation of what is coming next? So when I think of, just to stay with Gaza, yeah. I think over the last 12 months, uh, I think of Yasser. I think of Majdi. I think of Shadi. I think of Ezzedine, of Mohammed, of Hussein, of Zakaria, of Mohammed. I think of Yang Wesal, a 14-year-old girl. I also think about Allah, Muath, Jamal, and Saadi, 13 students of UNRWA aged from 11 to 16 years old who were shot and killed during the demonstrations in the Gaza Strip over the last 12 months. That's what I think of. Because I refuse and have always refused to accept anonymity in death and suffering. And one of the big risks in your profession, just as in mine, is that we reduce situations to statistics and forget what it means in human terms. And we all have a responsibility to refuse and reject that dimension. These 13 students, and it doesn't matter what one has as political preferences, these were young boys and one young girl who just like every other on the planet had hopes and expectations, simply they were born in Gaza. And their levels of frustrations and expectations about something to change led them to be part of peaceful demonstrations. And they lost their lives in that as part of the conflict dynamics. That's what I think about. And therefore, I think about how important it is to continue to preserve UNRWA's unique education system. We're the only one in the region which has a curriculum built in that also focuses on human rights, tolerance, conflict resolution, and builds, therefore, an opportunity for a generation to think not only about the frustrations, the tensions, and sometimes the anger that exists in this yes. region, but to think I can be a productive actor uh, in a global scale. I want to contribute to you know, the sustainable development goals or be part of a world community. That is what I think about.
1: So when you teach students uh, about human rights, about how to deal Uh, with their condition, which is unique compared to students around the world. Uh, I'm wondering, in a place like Syria, where they are refugees within a large sea of refugees, they are refugees, they are third-generation refugees surrounded by people who are experiencing that dislocation for the first time in their lives. Um, So they have, your students, uh, have In some ways, they can be be part of a kind of the intellectual capacity to solve this problem, or to at least help their their neighbors and the people around them to deal with their their new crisis. Um, Is that something that you see them doing? Can you are you preparing them for that role? Um, Is that something they want to do, or would they just prefer to to deal with their own problems rather than problems around them?
0: No, I think. You know, just as a very brief background before coming to the specific point. So in Syria, you had before the war 560,000 Palestine refugees living there since some of them 1948, others 67. So that's a sizable community. But the one thing that characterized their situation in Syria before the war was that they actually were welcome in Syria and were able to cover the large part of their needs. in a sort of self-sustaining manner because they had access to employment. Yes. So there's a very famous neighborhood to the south of Damascus called Yarmouk, where 160,000 of the Palestine refugee community used to live. And when they speak about it today, when you meet Palestinians inside Syria uh, who speak about Yarmouk that is now totally destroyed as a neighborhood, Mm. they speak about it with such a fondness and so much longing for something that was lost that you realize that in Syria you're dealing with another generation of Palestinians that have gone through the trauma of displacement, loss of home, loss of relatives, friends, neighbors, but also loss of livelihoods, and simply a basis for a dignified life. And so when you meet them, there's almost this double trauma. So Syrians, of course, at a massive scale have gone through multiple trauma. And then in the middle of this, you have the Palestinians. But you know, again, just to come back to the point we were making earlier, about it, the, the last thing that I want is to convey the impression of Palestinians and of Palestine refugees as being only victims, or only being in sort of need for us to stretch out the hand. Let me tell you the story of one of our ninth graders, uh, Ayabas, Abbas, so extraordinary, last year, and most people can be forgiven for not knowing that you have national exams still taking place in Syria year after year. Most people would think this is not happening. It is happening. National exams take place. And the highest performing student across Syria last year was Ayah Abbas, a ninth grader in the UNRWA school system. And when I went to a special ceremony in Damascus last year to honor the 28 highest performing students in UNRWA school system, 27 were girls, by the way. Now, that doesn't necessarily come as a very big surprise to people who follow education closely, but it's a statement about the fact when we speak about gender parity or empowering young girls, UNRWA doesn't pay lip service. It's happening. It's a reality. And this is something which is an extraordinary contribution to regional development, to opportunities. And Aya Abbas was born in Yarmouk. She was born in Yarmouk. She had to flee Yarmouk at a young age because of the destruction and the fighting, and yet was the highest performing student across the entire Syria. Now, even colleagues who have spent decades in education in UNRWA say, we cannot always quite explain that, Mm. how it's possible that so deeply traumatized children would actually find the energy to do that. And this is remarkable again, and we're extremely proud of those achievements. And in other words, to come to your question, there are, of course, thousands of young Palestinian boys and girls in Syria today who, if peace returned, opportunities came would of course wish to be contributors to rebuilding a country, regardless now of the politics of the uh, situation in, in Syria, that's not for me to comment on, but really as human beings I think could be very active contributors to that.
1: Now You can't, cont- you can't comment on politics, of course I understand, but politics sort of is in your face all the time. It intrudes it's, it's, into your daily life in yeah. ways that, it, that most people don't have to deal with. You have an election campaign going on. There's all kinds of rhetoric that comes out of an election campaign. It affects the, the children who go to your school, the people you serve uh, uh, through th- your, your other activities. How can you shut your eyes off from the politics? How does a, a human being do that?
0: Well, the reality is, as a human being, you don't. Right? So that is clear. And actually, just to say, because the, 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 the reverse side of the question is. You know that as humanitarians, one of the fundamental principles that we embrace uh, working in conflict environments is the principle of neutrality. But I just want to say a word about that, because it relates very strongly to your question. So of course, I've had many conversations with Palestinian colleagues asking me, how can you expect us to be neutral in this situation? We have faced one of the worst injustices in history. It's been going on for decades. How do you expect us as UNRWA staff As Palestinians. I said I will never expect anybody to be neutral in the face of injustice. That is not the case. We were all born with the heart in the right place. I have worked now for 27 years in war zones. I will never reconcile myself with the levels of violence, the suffering, the appalling injuries, the displacement, the families of the missing that I've had to deal with over all these years. But when you work in a humanitarian organization, you embrace neutrality. And even though I'm a Swiss citizen and many people think we're produced like that in factories somewhere in the mountains, that is just simply not the case. We do not, and you will never reconcile yourself with violence. But what we do is we embrace neutrality because it allows us to do more. I'm not interested in neutrality if it doesn't allow me to do something. But because I'm neutral, I can go to Aleppo and thank the colleagues who are there every single day. Because if we would Im- comment on the politics of it, that access might shut down. So in my case, I much prefer to know that we have teams working in Aleppo and Rafa in the Gaza Strip throughout the most difficult times in the middle of the polarization. So in a way, not dealing with the politics is your compass to survive in an extremely polarized environment in order to achieve things for people, not simply to stand on a moral high ground for yourself. But to actually make a difference for people. But it's certainly not easy, and there are many times where you feel challenged to the core about your personal beliefs, the values that you stand for, when you see what is happening on the ground. And you gave some very good examples. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I would say, UNRWA, in a certain sense, lives every day and is confronted every day with the human consequences of the unresolved political tensions. And circumstances that surround us, and that is indeed very, very difficult.
1: And you've now been doing this job for five, five years. years yeah. So you, you've been you've signed up for another three-year hitch. Um, that's a very long stretch for any one person to to deal with the the kinds of problems you deal with. This next question is a bit of a cliche, but I'm I'm sure many people here would be curious. Your best day and your worst day in these five
0: years. Yeah, that's a challenging one. I think um, maybe they, they all happen at the same time. and Maybe the, 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 the most difficult for me, and that has always been the case, is when, when you lose colleagues. Uh, we lost 11 colleagues uh, in Gaza, as I said, during the 2014 war. And I remember going to see every single family after the end of the war. And I will never forget that in one case, one of our staff members, who was a young man, who had worked as a security guard and was uh, killed uh, during the war. And I was sitting here, and in front of me were his, was his family. And from the, side, cor- the corner of my eye, I can see that somebody is stepping out into the courtyard carrying something. And instinctively, I knew it was going to be his young baby. Mm-hmm. And his wife stepped out with the baby in her arms, and that baby was less than. A year old. And so I knew, as we would all instinctively know in that moment, that here's another f- a child that is going to grow up without a father and that we of course had a particular responsibility as it was a staff member of UNRWA. So those are always going to be uh, the most uh, difficult moments. The most extraordinary moments are very much, and, and I say it not just because I'm here but because I, I really mean it, so much related to my discovery of what education is inside the UNRWA uh, system because the remarkable thing is when you go into an UNRWA school uh, in Gaza or elsewhere and you see the energy of these students and in particular an institution that we have created uh, a decade ago and that is a very unique feature to UNRWA's education system is student parliaments. So every Mm. September, October young boys and girls are elected at the level of their schools, but then also at a central level, like for the whole of Gaza or the whole of Jordan, Uh, and then now at at an agency-wide level. In other words, we have a central student parliament for all of UNRWA's students. So for the 530,000 boys and girls vote for and elect their representatives, and now we have a student parliament that has 22 members, boys and girls, representing uh, the half a million students across the region. And this is an act of participation, involvement, uh, contribution. It's a sort of a sense of assuming responsibility for their peers. And I have to say, I have limitless admiration for them uh, in their capacity and the confidence in the way in which they speak. Uh, Some of them joined me at the General Assembly. Uh, in New York last uh, September and it's the one standing ovation that I witnessed was uh, when uh, two of our students uh, Ahmad and Asil spoke and again delivered some of these very important messages because I think it conveys a different impression to what we may very often have about refugees where we think these are young boys and girls sitting in tents waiting for the world to save them in fact they are doing every single day so much to preserve their own opportunities, shaping their own destinies, and what we need to do is to commit to keeping those schools open and functioning uh, in a very dignified way. And so that's probably what mm-hmm. keeps me uh, going very much. Yeah.
1: Um, we're going to have some. Uh, we're going to have some mics go around the audience. Please uh, be prepared with your questions. Put your hands up when uh, when you're ready. Um, I'll ask one last question while while you can grab the attention of the people with the mic. Um, the, what can the world do now to help more? Uh, if the United States has pulled out, you, as you said, you put an extraordinary effort into making up for the loss of that $300 million, but you can't be spending that kind of time and energy every year to get that money. What can the world be doing different? What can the United Nations family be doing different? What can people in this room or this, this city be doing different
0: uh, to help you? So I would say uh, maybe there's two dimensions to that. One, I would really wish that we would find the strength to rediscover the needed courage to bring about a political solution. Because the last thing that anybody in UNRWA wants, we've now been in operations almost 70 years, and that was never the idea. It was never the idea that this organization should exist for 70 years, because although We can speak about the fact that it has done a lot of good for refugees. It is also a daily reminder of the really, truly catastrophic failure to bring about a political solution to this conflict. And I don't think that there's a single Palestine refugee, and certainly not a single staff member of UNRWA, who would want or wish for another 10, 20, 30, 40, or 50 years of UNRWA in exchange for this remaining lack of political solution. So the one thing I think none of us should tolerate or accept is what I often encounter in political circles, which is sort of people throwing their hands up in the air and saying, oh, well, we've tried it all. Well, you haven't tried hard enough because there are so many examples in the world. Think about just a simple example like Northern Ireland. So imagine how many people believed that there would be a Good Friday Agreement until it was actually done. Most people would have been skeptical. I have dealt a lot with Colombia in the Red Cross. It's a 50-year-old war. Most people were extremely skeptical until, of all persons, the former defense minister became president and decided it was time to do something different. So that's the whole thing about politics. It always looks impossible until one tries again. Not to mention, after World War II, you can imagine how many people in France and Germany were skeptical about the idea that those two countries of all, who had been at war with one another, for centuries would suddenly be and transformed into the engines of building the European integration and European Union. People are always skeptical, please. Skepticism is one of the least sophisticated forms of surrender that I'm aware of. Let's get rid of it and embrace courage and dealing with the issues. That is what would be needed first and foremost. Very humbly at our level, because you said it we do need a repeat of last year's miracle. So um, we, we are going to reach out very actively to all the countries that were so generous with us last year. Okay.
1: So questions from the audience. You have the mic. Uh, introduce yourself, please, when you ask. and then My
3: name is Nicole Monroe. I'm currently working in Saudi Arabia. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that the work that UNRWA does is not just essential. Um, I think it's inspirational. It's fantastic. It's very, very necessary. One of the concerns for me um, within the, the sphere of education is that you know, you're getting worldwide these young people in war-torn countries you know, up to a particular level of education. You're providing basic education for these people, for these young people, but what's next? You know, when we look at um, many different parts of the world, you know, we're talking about providing level playing fields we're, we're talking about, you know, providing those skills so that young people can grow up, actually, and become um, somebody within their society, and to play a main part, you know, invest within their own countries. What's next for these young people? Because surely it can't just be, you know, the equivalent to secondary education. Then what?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And this is where, of course, one cannot walk away from the politics of it. And and now I'm going to say it not as because I have a, you know, because my voice is important on what type of politics, but the fact is, let's take an example uh, that illustrates what you say, I think, very well. There are two that come to mind one is Gaza, and one is Lebanon. So in the Gaza Strip, You have, you know, when people think of Gaza, you close your eyes, you think of rockets being fired, the violence, destruction, and the blockade that is imposed on Gaza. You can think about Hamas and whatever images come to one's mind depending on the different political views one has and personal preferences. But the fact is, in the Gaza Strip, you have a population of two million people. 1.3 million are Palestine refugees. And so UNRWA has a huge responsibility in terms of education, 280,000 boys and girls in our schools alone in Gaza. So that's huge. Now, what happens to them when they finish with our education at the age of 16, knowing that the youth unemployment levels in Gaza are at 65%? And that's a world record and a tragic one. And so, of course, there is no way that the world can simply continue to close their eyes and deal with a situation like Gaza based on the polarized thinking that has so much to do with where we are between Israel and Palestine currently. Because of course, if polarized thinking had led to a solution, I would embrace polarization tomorrow. But the reality is it has led us nowhere. And it's now time to rethink the security and you know, human dignity of all people in the region, and for that it needs a solution that is inclusive of the concerns and aspirations of Palestinians and Palestine refugees, otherwise we're not going to move forward. And otherwise we're not going to be able to break this cycle of, you could almost say, educating young people into unemployment. And that's not going to be good in an environment that is so conflict-prone. And of course we do make a contribution in terms of technical vocational training. And in places like Jordan or elsewhere, and even in part in Lebanon although it's more challenging for national legislation reasons, we have a high success rate in terms of our graduates from the technical vocational training finding jobs later on. But the entire region, whether it's because of conflict or the socioeconomic conditions, are very much undermining progress for young people. So you cannot detach the humanitarian input that is given through UNRWA from the wider political questions that need to be resolved. Otherwise, it's an illusion, and it will be a dangerous one at that. So absolutely, your point is is a very important one.
2: Um, thank you, Yoko Actually, I think if anyone would talk for Palestine, it's a Palestinian refugee, it's, it's yourself. And uh, we really felt like your proudness of Asil and Ahmad in Syria, and also your, um, I would say. Memories of the others who were lost in Gaza. Uh, I would like just to ask a question. It's of course related to uh, the fact uh, that, you know, uh, in the coming this year and also in the coming years, uh, at the UNRWA, we're facing this uh, financial crisis due to the fund cut. So I will link this to the fact also that, uh, based on many evidence, the students of UNRWA and the quality of education that the UNRWA is providing to the uh, Palestinian refugees is really high. Uh, Hanan is also one of the maybe uh, you know evidence of of this fact. Uh, however, do you have concerns that the honour that maybe you know this crisis will even touch this level of the quality, not just the access? I mean, we of course understand the access point that uh, maybe unfortunately, if this will you know stay longer or if uh, uh, God forbid, you would not be able to secure the. Uh, this, to cover this gap in the coming uh, years, uh, maybe there won't be an ability to open all the schools and to provide you know, the health and the education to the Palestinian refugees. However, also the quality is a concern when it comes to this, to this point. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, this is extremely important and, there, and we have to be honest. You know, that is one of our biggest worries because when, uh, over the recent years, we had several financial challenging years, as you mentioned, and last year, of course, was a very big risk because of the big cut by the United States. Um, and when you go through those years, you, of course, you have to also take measures internally. So we did also not only ask donors last year to give uh, a lot of additional support, we also took internal measures to save and to reduce costs. And those are very big numbers that we saved, 92 million last year. So. It's a very tough internal exercise. It's a very necessary one because we couldn't go to the donors and say, just give us additional money if we didn't show that we're also prepared to do some of the hard work internally. But that means that we did not, for example, last year, recruit the normal additional numbers of teachers we would have recruited. In other words, the average class size increased. And you have today, on average, more children per class. On average, across the whole UNRWA, it's now about 40, different, for 40 students per classroom. So anybody who's a teacher in this room will know that there are examples like this, of course, elsewhere in the world as well. But that, that is a very challenging number. And in some cases, we have classrooms that have reached 50. And that becomes, for any teacher, a very challenging environment to hold together and to ensure that the quality stays. So everything that we have had to cut and control over the last few years, potentially risks being paid down the line in some form of quality. And so this is very important that we make the case that the investments that are needed to preserve the quality need to be we you know we need to catch up with them in the coming years by improving the funding that we mobilize by ensuring that we have new partnerships because it's just not worth seeing a downward trend in this regard. This is our big commitment. And you know, big, big changes have been introduced over the last uh, decade or so in the UNRWA system. It used to be everything by rote memorization. Now we have a completely different way of doing of, uh, teaching critical thinking in the classroom. So it's really an investment that needs to be preserved. We have time for one final question, Mina. Uh,
2: Mina Alarebi from the National. Unfortunately, we have, of course, Palestinian children and children from different countries in the region that have to deal with trauma and I wanted to talk to you to ask you about this education educating youngsters, especially primary school students, while helping them cope with the sorts of trauma that they've had to deal with. What have you learned from that? What can you tell people in this audience about that?
0: Yeah, it's such an important part you know when we after the, the conflict in Gaza in 2014, when we reopened the school year uh, a few weeks after the end of the war, so we tried to repair as many of the damaged school buildings as possible quickly, and then we opened the school year It with a, a three-week delay, which was quite remarkable. Again, very much a credit to all of our staff. There was 138 students missing at the beginning of that school year. They had died during the conflict. And that means that in almost every school across the Gaza Strip, there was an empty chair somewhere where uh, classmates were expecting to see someone sitting. And that means that we spent the first 10 days of that school year not going back to normal uh, teaching, because simply it was impossible for the students to refocus. So we did a completely different model, where children returned to uh, they just—they they were games played and people being brought back into simply re-socializing, overcoming the fear, speaking about it. And out of Gaza, we developed a very extensive network of uh, school counselors, psychosocial support, which is, by the way, a model that we used and uh, transported and changed, transformed into also into the Syrian context. And it was in a way touching, but also a little bit, it hurt when I was in... Syria uh, on one of my last visits because, you know, you always meet with students and you ask them, so what do you hope to be in life? So of course you will get a lot in UNRWA schools, you will get, of course, a lot of people will say, a lot of children will say teachers because they see the teachers or doctors or engineers. That's the top three that you normally get. And on that visit for the first time, I had several students say, we want to be counselors because more and more they have been now exposed to it. So it's a bittersweet side. It means that they have a lot of respect for the role that the counselors played. But of course, it also means that the counselors have become such an integral part of their lives. And out of this, you know, again, last year it was painful during the financial crisis that in Gaza, of all of the positions that we had to cut at a certain moment also to save money, sadly, the psychosocial support program was also negatively impacted, of all things. It's almost unbearable to think about. It's unbearable for the staff members, because when you lose a job in Gaza, you will not find another one. So it was catastrophic at the human level, individually, and for their families and the extended networks, but also the symbol of having that part of the work impacted. And so this is where I think you know, there's so much that UNRWA has learned, but has, can also learn from others. And that's why we're always keen to engage, but also that we can pass on and share with others, I think, out of our unique experience, and Bobby I know we're coming to the end, but if you allow me just to please share one more thing, because there is no especially with an education focus, no way one can come to a, a, an event like this without just simply showing this traditional UNRA student notebook you'll find it across the student uh, all of our schools, the 715 schools that you mentioned, and this one I found on the 17th of August, 2014, in the rubble of a destroyed UNRWA school in the Gaza Strip. It's a school that was, had a tank drive through it, an entire section of it. And as we were visiting it, this notebook was found there in the rubble. And it belonged to a young, 13-year-old uh, UNRWA student, Rua Khadeh. Uh, she was, at the time, uh, in the eastern part of, of Gaza. And she had, you can see from it, it's a typical, poetry book, notebook, right? So you can immediately recognize young girls' poetry book. And in one of the pages, I was standing there with uh, my colleague, Muhammad al who was in charge of that region. And he saw this poem. It's written in Arabic, so he had to translate it for me. And it says that hope is a friend that never betrays you. It might go away for a while, but it always comes back. And then it says, that happiness is something you should not look for in the neighbor's garden. You should take care of it in your own garden very carefully. And so there we were in the middle of this destroyed school, and the war was still going on. And so I made the promise to the few colleagues who were there. I said that we will rebuild the school in Chuzah, which we did a few months later. And I said also that we, if we did that, and if Rua had survived, because we didn't know at that moment if she was alive and her, if her parents were alive, said that she, we would ask her to come, and recite this poem at the inauguration. So thankfully, she and her parents survived the war, uh, and she did come uh, to the inauguration, and she uh, recited this poem. But in particular, what is important to know is that Rua, like over 90% of our students in the Gaza Strip, has never left Gaza in her life. And so when the inauguration took place, I handed her notebook back to her, but she wanted me to keep it. And so I made the promise to her that it would accompany me on all the trips around the world. And it has been in the hands of a number of people, from President Obama to the Pope to Pope Francis and others. But it's very important, it doesn't matter whose hands it was in. The importance is that this message of Ruah and of young Palestinian boys and girls that show so much courage studying in our schools, overcoming hardships that I have even no idea of. Had in my life, and many of you might, but I hadn't in my life, and deserve the highest respect and admiration. And uh, thanking you for being here today, and to carry this message. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you very much. But um, but Pierre will be
1: here; will be outside. I would I would encourage you to take the opportunity to ask him questions. If you're looking for a jolt of inspiration, there's nothing better than to to have a chance to speak with him. Um, And if you have some solutions for the problems uh, that he and his organization uniquely face, I'm sure he would be very, very keen to hear from you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for joining us.